Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. We want to recommend another podcast you'll like. Amicus is a show about the rule of law, the law, and the nine Supreme Court justices who interpret it for the rest of America. Host Dahlia Lithwick takes a deep look at the U.S. justice system and our democracy, diving into topics like the impeachment process, voting rights, civil rights, and this term's blockbuster Supreme Court docket. Most recently, she goes back to where one of the most influential legal careers in U.S. history began, Harvard Law School, September 1956. She talks to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her female classmates about how they influenced her then and now. Subscribe to Amicus in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Hey, Ellen, I've been thinking about clicks. Remember the wake-up click from the 1970s? That moment when the message of the women's movement clicked into place? It woke us up. Oh, that click. It's like one of Oprah's aha moments. When the light bulb in your head blinks on and you, you actually see something that had been there all along but invisible. For us, it was the way women were treated, the way we were treated. It was our friend, the writer Jane O'Reilly, who first labeled the click moments in the debut issue of Ms. Magazine. She told the story of the Texas housewife who'd piled her kids' toys on the stairs to be carried up. Then, as she continued to clean downstairs, she watched as her husband carefully stepped over the toys on his way up. And then he asked, why can't you get this stuff put away? Click. It was the soundtrack of my life as a young working mother, too. I was doing the double shift of work and home, something none of us ever questioned. In fact, I thought I was lucky to be able to work. And one day, I actually heard myself asking my husband if he would mind babysitting our daughter while I finished writing a story. I mean, babysitting. (laughs) My click moment came as a young reporter at the Associated Press. I was sent out to do a story on a meeting of this new thing called Women's Liberation in 1969. Male reporters weren't allowed in. Finally, an advantage. Anyway, I was taking notes, writing in the third person, and they are fighting for equal pay, and they demand equal access, and then I realized, that makes sense. These are my issues. They were I. Suddenly, I was a feminist. I'm Lynn Scher. I'm Ellen Goodman. And this is She Votes a podcast about our battle for the ballot. Our own awakening to the modern women's movement coincided with the click so many others heard after reading Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique. It helped identify their frustration, the problem that had no name. But when it came to action, the movement for women's equality grew out of the movement for racial equality. 
For a lot of women who began as activists in the civil rights movement, what they saw in racial discrimination made them recognize their own oppression. It raised women's consciousness about the limitations of gender along with color, and it led to a new movement of their own. Women applied the language and the tactics they'd learned from civil rights, protests, marches, legal challenges, even adapted the newly popularized term racism to denounce sexism. In 1969, they created the Women's Liberation Movement. The second wave of feminism was born. Okay, Lynn, let's stop talking in the third person, <laughs> because you and I were both covering and caught up in this exciting time. We thought we were such pioneers, and it turns out we were repeating history. The women who created the suffrage campaign, the first wave feminists, had also emerged from a movement for freedom, the movement to abolish slavery. That's what this episode is about. The belief in women's equality had long been brewing, but back in the 1800s, a lot of women found their voice as crusading abolitionists. Historian Ann Gordon says the connection was natural. I think it's human equality and human rights, that there is no basis for a hierarchical relationship among humans. So what they saw in slavery led them to say, you, you can't do that in a patriarchy either. It's a contributing idea, definitely. But within the abolitionist movement, women were often kept from attending meetings. When they were allowed in, they were often kept from speaking their minds. Those early anti-slavery groups were interracial. So were the restrictions. Both black and white men kept black and white women from participating fully. So when the men wouldn't let them in, they formed their own female anti-slavery societies. And there they spoke out forcefully. So many heroes, Angelina and Sarah Grimke, sisters from South Carolina who fled their family plantation to help free all slaves. Harriet Fortin Purvis and Sarah Maps Douglas, prominent black activists from Philadelphia. And most celebrated of all, their neighbor, Lucretia Coffin Mott four-foot-eleven Quaker, who helped organize the first convention of female abolitionists in 1837. It was a groundbreaking meeting, the Anti-Slavery Convention of American Women. For the first time, an interracial group of women spoke out publicly on civic matters. In a world that told women to mind their tongues and stay at home, they were openly joining the conversation. The subject was slavery, but the taste of liberation would resonate further. And if we look at our kind of origin narrative from there, I think it has a big impact on how we think about uh, the women's rights movement and the suffrage movement. Paula Giddings, a longtime history professor at Smith College, has chronicled the intersection of race and gender. The suffrage movement is based in abolitionist politics. And abolitionism really provides kind of the language and the idea of the discourse and the meaning of what freedom is. And so this is where the realization and the language and the ideas around liberation really begin to fertilize in that movement. 
just as later on, where the women's movement of the 60s really is embedded in the civil rights movement of that period, the same thing is going on with abolitionism and women's suffrage. More parallels, Lynn. Like our modern women's movement, that 1837 convention of anti-slavery women and others could not have happened without even earlier rebellions by other bold women in their churches and meeting houses and parlors. They had so much to rebel against. It was a time when the 26 United States of America were ruled by Blackstone's English common law that bluntly stated, the husband and the wife are one, and that one is the husband. It meant a married woman could not own property, make contracts, sue or be sued, or be guardian of her own children. There were no colleges for women, a few professions beyond housework, sewing, teaching, and factories, and there was nothing approaching equal pay or equal political rights. And, of course, no woman could vote. But America was changing, and many women were moving towards a more public life. For one young newlywed, the path from abolition to women's rights led to the most radical political right in a democracy, the right to vote. Her name was Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and her story is deeply entwined with yet another convention. This one met in 1848. The place, Seneca Falls, New York. So welcome to Women's Rights National Historical Park. I am Ranger Emily. Uh, this is where the first Women's Rights Convention was held July 19th and 20th of 1848. So we'll get Emily Welch loves telling the story of women's suffrage at Women's Rights National Historical Park in upstate New York. The convention that took place at Seneca Falls in 1848 was the first committed specifically to the rights of women, all women. Unlike those early female anti-slavery meetings, when women first spoke out publicly for the rights of the enslaved, the one at Seneca Falls was convened, and I quote, to discuss the social, civil, and religious condition and rights of women. It would also demand, outrageously, the right to vote. Ranger Emily's passion is making the convention meaningful to modern visitors. On this winter morning, her tour group was students from a nearby high school. I'm Zach. I'm 15, 9th grade, from Liverpool. I'm Kaylee. I'm 17. I'm in 11th grade. Um, I'm Aaliyah. I'm 16. I'm in 10th grade from Liverpool, and my favorite subject is probably art. So let's talk about why 1848, why Seneca Falls. I'm going to give you a lot of context today, and I promise it's going to make sense. So these lands, like the majority of lands in the United States, are indigenous people's lands. You might hear them called Iroquois, but preferred term is Haudenosaunee. And the time period we're Lynn, talking about is the as we listened to Emily that day, I was struck by her ability to put the Seneca Falls Convention into context. She went back to the Native American origins of the site, to the influx of Irish and other immigrants, to the revolutions happening all through Europe. You did realize that Karl Marx published the Communist Manifesto in the same year, 1848, right? Well, I do now. Emily also underscored the anti-slavery roots of this new demand for equality. Abolitionists were fighting against specifically slavery. And the five women that organized this first women's rights convention are all abolitionists. That is not a coincidence. The abolition movement gives birth to the women's rights movement. Does anybody else know? Then, wow, did she ever know how to get the students' attention. Now, let's talk about underwear. Yep. 
underwear. Everybody's favorite is a corset. Have you all ever felt a corset before? Okay, pass it around. The students that day were more familiar with t-shirts than waist cinches. And as they took turns holding the strange contraption, heavy with whalebone supports, they had no clue it might represent something more than an undergarment. Let me slip a rib cage over your rib cage and tighten it up. You will probably have permanent internal damage to your organs, but you'll have a great figure. Now, would you agree with me that these women's bodies are constricted by their clothing? Yeah. Does it sound like their lives are just as constricted as their bodies? What happens when people are pushed into a corner? They're going to have original thought. They're going to challenge the status quo. One of those challengers was Elizabeth Cady Stanton, a 32-year-old local housewife who first felt pushed into a corner as the child of a prominent lawyer. She reads every single one of her father's law books, and she quickly recognizes that women are legally, civilly dead in the United States. And she sees the realities of that, because desperate women are coming to her father and begging for his help. My husband passed away, my land and my children are now going to my brother-in-law. And what can this great, powerful, well-connected man do for these women? Nothing. I'm really glad Emily told that part of Elizabeth Cady Stanton's childhood. She was so offended by those laws, she thought she could change them by literally cutting them out of her father's books with scissors. De definitely an early click moment. But I think the more useful moment came in 1840, when Elizabeth went to London on her honeymoon and met the very famous Lucretia Mott. So Lucretia was, what, 47 at the time, the grand dame of the abolitionist movement, Elizabeth just 25. Both Elizabeth's husband and the Mots were there to attend the International Anti-Slavery Convention. What happened next would change the course of women's history. And the first day of that abolitionist convention, they're not talking about slavery, they're talking about these women. Definitely not going to be seated as delegates, but the compromise is these women can sit to the side silently. Another affront, another corner. Elizabeth later put it this way in a speech about that London abolitionist convention. Delegates were denied their seats simply on the ground of sex. Thus was liberty struck dumb, the right of speech denied one half the race. Remember this and hand it down to your children's children for them to wonder at and laugh over in the good time coming. This time, Elizabeth pushed back with a plan. She and Lucretia became close friends, walking arm in arm and talking heart to heart over the next years. During one of those conversations, Elizabeth vowed to hold a meeting to discuss their own rights. Abolition had gotten them started. The indignation at the London meeting had lit the match. Now they'd fan the flames of female independence in Seneca Falls. The convention would take place in the red brick Wesleyan Chapel. And Lynn, as we followed Emily in her tour group, I remember reading about the anxiety and excitement that July morning. They had no idea how many people, if any, would show up. They were amazed to see a caravan of carriages on the road. And when they got there, the door was locked. It was. So Elizabeth's nephew crawled in through the window to let them in. 
Not an auspicious beginning. Awfully glad we didn't have to do that. So Ellen, as we walk into this restored Wesleyan Chapel, I can't help but realizing we are in the room where it happened. Yeah, the actual room uh, with at least a lot of the actual bricks and, and the actual feel. At the time, there were 300 people in here. It was July. It was, it was hot. It was hot, yeah. <laughs> and they had no clue what this might lead to. I wonder if the people in this room at that moment had understood it would take 72 years to get the 19th Amendment and then another 50 years to secure voting rights for women of color and, and women in very different situations around the country. I wonder if they'd have done it, if they'd known how long it was going to take. Oh, I think they would have. Votes is proudly brought to you by the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Located in the heart of North Carolina, UNC Greensboro is nationally recognized for its outstanding academic programs, focus on affordability for all students, and an unwavering commitment to equity for all. UNCG was founded as a women's college in 1891 and has since grown to become one of the most diverse institutions in the state. Today, UNC Greensboro is a model for how a university can blend opportunity, excellence, and impact. It's ranked as the number one university in North Carolina for creating social mobility. That's no surprise, given that it was one of the first places to offer women in North Carolina a high-quality education, real professional training, and an opportunity to make an impact and have a voice. In case you hadn't noticed, chronicling the battle for the ballot during the suffrage centennial is our passion too here at She Votes. So we are excited to have the support of a university that was founded to serve women and has played a key role in shaping issues of equity in our own time. To learn more about the university, head to uncg.edu. UNC Greensboro, find your way here. Everybody, if you could take a seat towards the front afterwards, you are welcome to look around. You like sitting? Okay. What is original is the red brick. It would have been covered by the white plaster. Floors would have had wooden planks on it. What else is original is the beams and ceiling above you. Ellen and I slid into the pews of the restored Wesleyan Chapel in Seneca Falls, along with the students visiting Women's Rights National Historical Park. Ranger Emily described the convention that took place there in 1848, the first to focus exclusively on the rights of women at a time when they had almost none. Lucretia Coffin Mott, she takes the stage, she addresses the audience, she tells the women, do not worry about your education, and she essentially tells the men to remain, but remain silent the first day. The second day it was a complete reversal of social custom. Men were not allowed to speak, the first day anyway, and women's voices were welcome no matter their schooling. The audience, local residents, 
husbands and wives, some children, plenty of activists, settled in for two days of rousing speeches from Lucretia, Elizabeth, and others. One of the most prominent was Frederick Douglass, an early supporter of women's suffrage and said to be the only African-American in attendance. Emily had earlier shown the students his statue. And this is who we have here, the most photographed man of the century. Now, Frederick Douglass is what they called a self-emancipated slave, which is a really fancy way of saying he escaped uh, slavery. He is living uh, in Rochester at the time and publishing the North Star Abolish newspaper. We'll talk more about- Elizabeth Cady Stanton quickly got to the main business, presenting the declaration of sentiments and resolutions that she drafted just three days earlier. It was a damning description of the second-class status of American women. And it was modeled on something very familiar to these Americans whose grandparents had fought the revolution against Great Britain. And she intentionally based it off of the Declaration of Independence, which famously states, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Now, we could debate all day long with what they meant by men. Elizabeth's not going to be leaving anything up to debate with her declaration. She states, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. And just like those colonists in 1776 listed their grievances against the crown, these women and men are listing their grievances against men. Elizabeth started with a grave charge. The history of mankind is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations on the part of man toward woman. He has never permitted her to exercise her inalienable right to the elective franchise. He has compelled her to submit to laws in the formation of which she had no voice. He has made her, if married, in the eyes of the law, civilly dead. He has taken from her all the right and property, even to the wages she earns. He has endeavored in every way that he could to destroy her confidence in her own powers, to lessen her self-respect, and to make her lead a dependent and abject life. The accusations were adopted unanimously. Then Elizabeth read 11 resolutions demanding women's equality, legally, socially, religiously, including this bombshell at number nine. Resolved that it is the duty of the women of this country to secure to themselves their sacred right to the elective franchise. The right to vote. It was such an outrageous idea, even Lucretia Mott feared it would make them look ridiculous. So radical, even Elizabeth's husband found a convenient excuse to be somewhere else. So subversive, it may have only passed when Frederick Douglass added his I. Ranger Emily wanted to be sure the students on her tour appreciated the shock value and the importance of that demand for the vote. She wanted them to understand how truly powerless women were, how critical it was to get their own vote, their own voice to change laws. So she had them do a bit of role-playing as a married couple, Abby and Alexander. Abby worked at a mill while her husband drank away most of the money. This was not unusual. We watched as Emily got the students to appreciate Abby's situation with her job at the local mill. Is Abby the boss at the mill? No. no. And once again, where is her paycheck going to go? To the man. Oh, why can't she keep it? She's, she's a woman. Hey, okay. now, I'm going to make it more serious for Abby. He's a mean drunk. 
He gets drunk, he comes home, he physically abuses you and your children. We got kids now. And this night he goes even further. He is strangling her. She hits him over the head, he dies. She's getting sentenced. Who is going to come ask questions the next day? Or a few days later? A man. A police officer? A man. A police officer. Okay, I show up, you give, you give me your story. Sounds like to me he's just disciplining his wife, as every man has the right to do. You murdered him, I'm taking you to jail. Who's going to be your lawyer, a man or a woman? A man. Judge? A man. Jury? A man. Executioner? Abby wasn't real, but her situation was. Women were at men's mercy, and without a voice in the government, they had no chance of changing laws. That was the point of Emily's next question, to get them to see the vote as a tool for social change, to understand the value of the Seneca Falls Convention. But Emily did not count on the mindset of one young member of the Me Too generation looking for a swifter solution. What is another quick, efficient way to get out of a marriage? Divorce? To poison his drink. <laughs> we decided it's not worth the risk to murder him. Let's just take murder. Okay. Adultery. I, I had to really laugh when she said that. Poison his drink. Talk about direct action. I know. Ranger Emily was going for the legal route, so she switched gears and tried another role play. She asked the students to consider the concept of granting children, 10-year-olds, the right to vote. They rejected it instantly. So why shouldn't a child vote today? Because they're not mature enough. What do you mean by that? I mean, like, a 10-year-old's mindset is completely different from anybody else's. Even if they grew up in a household where they were forced to be mature, they're not going to be mature to the point where they know everything that's going on around them. Some kids won't understand what to vote for or... They don't know enough about, like, politics, okay? What else? That they shouldn't be able to, like, pick the future for our country. Oh, but it's their future, too. Yeah, but, like, they're so young. Same conversations happened in 1848. This is why it's so radical. It's like saying a kid can vote. Yes, sir. Bingo, the students got it. They connected their own biases towards children voting to the sexism of society in 1848. That's why, Emily says, she does this. I love it. It's a passion. I don't think they realized how desperate uh, many women's situations were. I just don't think they realized to the degree that women were subjugated and oppressed. The Women's Rights Convention at Seneca Falls didn't instantly upend the world, but it led to more meetings, more organizing, more passionate supporters who created a movement. Something had stirred. Something had changed. The drive for women's participation that had begun with abolition had now broadened out to include more political engagement, specifically the right to vote. Historian Ann Gordon. Why the vote? What made it the key to equality and the key to participation? There seems to be a conviction among 19th century people that it's a pivotal power. It's referred to in weaponry terms as the winning cannon that gets you what you need, or it's referred to as the right protective of other rights. The vote being that powerful. That powerful. So there's this understanding that 
without the vote, you have no power whatsoever. Well, and use another American phrase, you are not consenting to your government. And women had not had any consent in the laws that affected them. Remember, the list of grievances and demands at Seneca Falls was called the Declaration of Sentiments and Resolutions, as in that earlier Declaration of Independence. To what extent were Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott saying, this is our declaration? It drew the values of the American Revolution into their cause. Without even saying so, it brings in the idea of no taxation without representation. It draws in the idea of self-determination. They're declaring independence from a world that says, we'll tell you what you're allowed to do. But the world wasn't letting go of stereotypes easily. They are certainly met with ridicule. They're mocked about the pure idiocy and ludicrousness of what they're trying to say and do. Elizabeth Cady Stanton recalled the idiocy in a speech just 11 years later. Why, the nation was convulsed with laughter from Maine to Louisiana. So passingly ridiculous it did seem to all that under this free government any could complain of wrongs, much less fair woman. For in what other country, said they, has she ever been treated with such profound respect as here? Has she not been worshipped, idolized, toasted for 70 long years? What more can she ask? Elizabeth knew that the laughter would at some point stop. Anyway, she had more important things to worry about as she wrote to a friend a few months after the 1848 convention. We have declared our right to vote. The question now is how should we get possession of what rightfully belongs to us? Some quick turn, right? They demand the vote in July of 1848, and in August, Elizabeth is starting to plan strategy. Some click. Probably not so different from some of today's click moments. Look at the Me Too movement. It took off when the disclosure of outrageous acts by so many powerful, famous men finally woke up the nation. And this year, the Black Lives Matter movement began transforming the world after Americans actually watched violent and systemic racism. So many movements share roots in a struggle for basic freedom and equality. We've seen how the first wave of feminism evolved from a passion against slavery to a campaign for suffrage. It's striking how much they've had in common. As Martin Luther King famously preached, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And yet, at the same time, these allies in the pursuit of justice are also subject to the pressures and mixed loyalties that are always threatening to pull them apart. As abolitionism and, and women's suffrage becomes divided and separated and fragmented, then that's where a lot of problems begin to arise around, around race and the racism of that movement. Next week on She Votes. She Votes is produced by Maddie Foley, Edie Allard, and the team at Wonder Media Network. To learn more about our battle for the ballot, you can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media, on Instagram at WMN.media, or on our website, SheVotesPodcast.com. Special thanks to Denise DeLucia and Emily Welsh at Women's Rights National Historical Park, to Christine Alexander and the students at Innovation Tech High School. Thank you for listening.
For too long, history lessons have glossed over the truly essential contributions women have made to that history. That's where Encyclopedia Womanica comes in. This podcast from Wonder Media Network aims to change the narrative by introducing the pioneers, scientists, artists, and more from antiquity to today who have shaped our society. Every weekday, host Jenny Kaplan dives into the trials, tragedies, and triumphs of this diverse group of groundbreaking women. And the best part is, each episode is only five minutes long. The bite-sized episodes pack painstakingly researched content into fun, entertaining, and addictive daily adventures. You may or may not already know these women, but you definitely should. Subscribe to Encyclopedia Womanica wherever you get your podcasts.